Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you again. Uh, thank you for having my family and I back. Uh, thank you so much for uh, letting us come to Leavenworth again. And thank you, too, to, to Jim and Rosie Head for uh, hosting us. Um, it, it, it feels like I'm we get to hang out or go to a party or something. I mean, we, we do, we have like a really fun time at, at their house. So uh, we appreciate it so much. So thank you so much for your love and hospitality uh, for my family and I and providing a place that we can kind of, you know, tune in, you know, for a day prior to, to being able to come uh, with you all. So thank you so much for that. Uh, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is, is Ray Hanna and uh, I attend Faith Bible Church in Spokane, Washington. And uh, so through, you know, some connections that that Cornerstone Church has with them, you know, we get to come on occasion and and uh, and preach and help out until you have a a full time pastor uh, in the pulpit. And as I understand, like my brother was saying earlier, you're almost there, almost there. So another week or so. So hopefully uh, another few weeks or so and everything will will come together. So please turn uh, in your copy of the scriptures with me to Psalm 3, please. Psalm 3, that's what, what we read earlier. And that's where we'll be from today, preaching from today. So as a lot of you know, there, there are 150 psalms. And of that 150, about 37 of them are attributed directly to David. Uh, by superscript. So that little funny italicized writing right above verse 1, you know, those, we call that the superscript. So there are about 37 of them that are attributed directly to David by superscript. And of that 37, 13 of them relate to events and they relate to periods in the life of King David. And of that 13, the first one that relates uh, to an event in his life is this one. It's Psalm 3. And so I want to set the backdrop for the psalm a little bit before we read it. And so, one, we know that, that David wrote it, and that's through a whole bunch of, you know, complex, you know, scholarly work on manuscripts, and because right above it, the little superscript says, a psalm of David. So we know it's a psalm of David. And the superscript also says, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so that's referring to the events uh, recorded in 2 Samuel. There's two, uh, three chapters, 15, 16, and 17. So it kind of tells of kind of what happened. There was some, some pretty major events. And just for the sake of time, uh, I don't have time to go into that. But it's important because 2 Samuel tells of King David's triumphs, uh, his transgressions, and then his troubles. It's, it's like an arc, you know, it goes here, and then it kind of goes up, and then it goes down. It goes down. Um, so in 2 Samuel, David becomes king of Judah, and his reign begins. So you have a, you know, going up there. And then the Davidic covenant is established. He established Jerusalem as the capital. The Ark of the Covenant gets brought back. So it's this really good, you know, triumphant series of events. Then there's this lust. Then the lying, then the adultery, then the conspiracy to commit murder, you know, murder, the death of his baby, and then his son stages a coup, Absalom, his son stages a coup, and David flees. So David's on the run. And so it's against that backdrop that this psalm uh, comes to us. So 
it should be kind of obvious to us why uh, we need to hear this, because we, we all have trouble. We all have some challenge. We all have troubles, plural. We all have things that may plague us. They may be immediate crisis events. They may be long-term events. You know, they may be things that for years and years that we pray for, you know, those kinds of things. So we need to hear this today because the Psalms comfort us in hard times, and they create a place for us where our high view of a faithful God intersects with our present position in this world. Do you understand what I mean? So we have, you know, in Scripture and in our hearts and, and a lot of us through our experience, we have this understanding that there's a tremendously faithful God, like we sang in the hymns, that who else can make the kings bow down? You know, who else can do it? So we have a high view of a very faithful God. And those, those are things that, you know, are spiritual realities. They're spiritual realities. We know those things. And we get to see them sometimes in this life and in this world. So it, it isn't just they're sort of abstract ideas, but oftentimes we get to see that. We get to see times where God does amazing things. But in the world we're in, you know, physically most of the time, what we can sense, you know, with our five senses, like my brother said earlier, there's, there's politics, there's economics going on, there's a tremendous things going on on a big picture and in our own lives as well. And so the Psalms are, are amazing because you have, in this case, someone like David who's experiencing something in the real world, in the physical world, but he's holding on to these realities that he knows, you know, from, in his case, from the Scripture as well. And so we can break the psalm into three parts. So when we'll read it in a moment. So verses 1 and 2, we have the problem is stated. The problem stated. And then in verses 3 through 6, we have the placement of trust. And in the last two verses, 7 and 8, the petition is made. So we have a problem stated, placement of trust, and the petition is made. And another feature in the psalm you'll see is the word selah, you know, S-E-L-A-H. We see that in there. And so that's a, it, it serves a musical and a theological purpose. It shows up mostly in the first three psalms. So musically, it marks the beginning of a, a new musical section or kind of a crescendo uh, theologically, uh, it may also mean to stop and meditate and ponder. And so for our purposes, uh, both of these definitions are, are, are useful. So let's read Psalm 3, beginning at verse 1. Lord, how my enemies have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield around me my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying out to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be upon your people. And so in verses 1 and 2, we have the problem stated. He says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. 
many are rising up against me. And so this is his expression of, you know, the rise of his adversaries and their expressions of hopelessness. And this is important because we need to learn to be real and to be open and to be honest and to be transparent with God. And so the extent of this rebellion that he's experiencing now and the surprise of it and the sting of it uh, really, really distresses him. And we have to remember, too, that David was a military man. We think of David as, you know, King David, and he was a king, but he was the kind of king that had a sword. He picked up a sword. He went to battle. He went to war. He took life. So David is a military man. And so, trust me, if you're a politician, you know, a king, and a military man, trust me, the military part of you dominates because that's the harder part. You, you sort of, you do that, and then you say, okay, I have to be a king, but I got to pick up a sword. And I guarantee you the picking up the sword part is the more traumatic. It's the part of you that, that really is going to kind of dominate your psyche and the way that you think. And so when you read the Psalms with the understanding that this is a military man, a lot of the terms and the things that he says, they, they kind of become clearer to us. He says, many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance, no salvation for him in God. And so the idea behind this is this is a taunt. You know, they're taunting him. They said, it, 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 it looks like, you know, they're saying to him, there's no way out. Uh, they're taunting him. They're saying, God has forsaken you. There's no, there's no salvation for him and God. God's not going to do anything for him. God's not going to help him. If, if you want to cut someone to the heart, you know, some of us have maybe have experienced this, tell a follower of Christ, tell a follower of Yahweh, not that God doesn't exist, tell him he doesn't care. God doesn't care. He's not going to do anything for you. Yeah, you're on your own. That is, that is a bad, bad feeling. So they're telling him, in essence, God has forsaken you. God is not going to help you. And so what's important here, again, in the problem stated, is that we need to learn to pour our hearts out like this. God knows. Tell him anyway. Because sometimes you need to vocalize and you need to think through and express your problem clearly. There's, there's something very good and there's something very powerful about saying, God, I'm scared. God, I'm confused. God, I don't see a way out. God, I don't know what to do. God, I feel like a failure. That's not bad. That's, in Scripture, we call it, that's a lament. That's what it means to lament. It's not the same thing as whining hopelessly. That's not what we're talking about. It doesn't mean you hopelessly whine. Oh, Lord, you know, this. that's just whining. Lamenting is different. Lamenting is you are expressing how you genuinely feel, but it's undergirded with this idea that, but I understand to whom I'm speaking and that there's hope in the end. It's one thing to say, oh, things are terrible. It's another thing to say, oh, things are ter terrible, but God. And then you begin to communicate and, and fellowship with God more. We, we uh, sang so many of the hymns this morning, you know, just tied in with things. You know, talking about intimacy and closeness to God, the way the the, the song we sang earlier said is, I think it said, who else invites us to call him father? So when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, and he said, okay, this is how you pray. 
So think about it. God is telling you, this is how you pray. And you go, okay. And he says, say father. That means God is inviting you to call him father. And that was very, uh, in the Old Testament, it, it, there's some mention of that. But trust me, when Jesus said, pray like this, you call God father, trust me, they kind of went, wait, what? I mean, I understand God is sovereign, omnipotent, like I get all that. And I mean, yeah, he's our father, you know, father of Abraham, I mean, he's a father, but you're telling me when I pray, I can direct, I can just say father. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. God is inviting us to call him father and to be close. And so the psalmist here is casting his cares on God. So speak the truth to God about what is going on with you and in your life. And this applies to teenagers, high schoolers. If you're old enough to pray, you need to learn to do this as soon as you can. And so the problem becomes clear then. So so that's what we see in verses 1 and 2. We see the problem stated. Think about it. You're going to put your trust somewhere. The problem exists anyway. I mean, it's there. It is whatever it is. It it exists. That's why you're, you're praying. So you've got a problem and you've got trust. The trust is going somewhere. It's not like you're not putting trust anywhere. You're either going to put it in yourself, you're going to put it in your skill, your cleverness, your money, your power, someone else's power, someone else's cleverness, someone else's skill. Your trust is going to go somewhere. Sex, gambling, you know, relationships, work, whatever it is, you know, we call these things functional saviors. It means that they're things that we turn to and kind of treat them like saviors in the sense that this helps me, this makes me feel better. Those are the things that we turn to. So we put our trust somewhere anyway. And Scripture is calling us to turn to God and put our trust there. Put your trust in Him. And that's what David does. And let's see what we can observe as, as David does this in the next few verses. We'll look at verses uh, 3 through 6. It says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Again, David's a military man. If you look up the number of times shield appears in the Psalms. Uh, I'll, I'll run through the Psalms real, real briefly. So remember, David was a man of war. Okay, so when you understand that, these, these, these terms take on a different tone. Psalm 3.3 here, he says, Thou, O Lord, art a shield around me. Psalm 7.10, My shield is with God, which saves the upright in heart. It's a saving shield. Psalm 18.2, The Lord is my shield. It's a personal shield. The Lord is my shield. Psalm 84, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. It's a protecting shield. All the way through Psalm 144, my shield who subdues. He's a subduing shield. And I, I literally, there are literally 40 of these. I just jumped through you know, the Psalms real briefly. I spent 24 years on active duty. And trust me, your gear is your lifeline. His trust as a military man, in a sense, is in that shield. It's in that rifle. It's in that flak vest. It's in that Kevlar helmet. It's in whatever. You trust in your gear. And in this case, his trust is in God as his shield. The two 
kind of come together as a, a metaphor for him. And so we are mistaken if we trust anything else. If we functionally put our trust in anything else, we are mistaken. So I want to encourage you to do that. He is acknowledging that in the midst of this horrible experience that no one else can make a king bow down, no one else can save him, no one else can protect him, no one else can help him except God. So he is demonstrating here where he's placing his trust. And so again, I want to encourage us to do that. We need to turn to him. So I want to, on one hand, I want to encourage you. And on the other hand, I want to burst your bubble. I want to discourage you. I want to dissuade you from putting your trust anywhere else. Because I will promise you, I will guarantee you, it will let you down. It will take and not give back. And in the end, it will leave us empty. Everything else is going to let us down. Guaranteed. And then he says, God is my glory and the one who lifts my head. So that's a little bit of an unusual turn of phrase. You know, my glory, you, are, you are my glory. That's a, a sort of a strange turn of phrase. And what he means by that, if you think about it, David is a king. David is a prominent person, right? He's king. So he understands splendor and majesty and, you know, pomp and circumstance and authority and all that kind of stuff. So he, he understands I'm somebody. I'm a king. I, I am an important person. When he says, you are my glory, what he means is that you are the source of my glory. You're my glory. And the idea of the lifter of my head, we can all probably think of a, a time where either we've done it to someone or someone's done it to us or we are down and someone kind of, come on, keep your head up, lift your Come on. God, he means by that that God is his encourager. God is the source of his greatness. That means he understands. If you think about what that means, what he's saying is I have no pride or trust in myself. I'm a king. I have authority. I have power. I have money. I have wealth. I have, you know, he has, even though he's undergoing this, he still has some degree of authority as a king. But what he's saying is I have no pride in myself. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. So this is a statement of humility here. God is his encourager. He's saying, you will lift me out of this sad emotional state. It's much like depression or feeling hopeless. This is who God is to him. And so we need to think about for ourselves, who and what do we turn to in times of distress? Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the one who lifts my head, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Those are all military terms. Rock, fortress, deliverer, refuge, my stronghold. These are military terms. These are war terms. And he understands, you, you know, when you're fleeing someone in danger and you're worried about your life ending at any given moment, trust me, when you see a fortress, when you see a stronghold, when you see a garrison, when you see something and you go, whew, that is very soothing and calming to know that I'm safe. I'm in it's what we call a hardened facility. I'm in a hardened facility. Okay, you know, I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm not just out there. So he's trusting in God. He's trusting in who he is. He's trusting in God's character. 
and he's trusting in God's will, and he's trusting uh, God's intention and God's desire over his own. He's saying, God, you've got my back. That's in essence what he's saying. You've got my back. You will lift my head. That's trust. And, and, it's, and it's a dynamic relationship, too. It's not just one way. Look at verse 4. He says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I was crying. I went out, Lord, 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 and he answered. So there's movement there. There's interaction. His relationship is dynamic. This is a recognition that God is active in the circumstance, in the situation. I'm not just pleading to the brass heavens, you know, to the ceiling. I'm crying out, and I can see God's hand moving in the situation. God is not dormant in our lament. He's not dormant in our crying. He says, I cried, and he answered all the way from his mountain. That's Zion. That's Zion. Zion is where people came to God through sacrifice. This means that God is faithful. That's what he's saying. Trust in what God does because there is security and there is trust in God. And in verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. Once again, when I think of that, when we think of that, we say, that's nice. I laid down. I slept, and then I awoke, and thank God, God sustained me. Let's amplify that a little bit. When you're on the run, and you're in a hostile environment, there is, there's, there's no hotel here. So trust me, when you are in war, sleeping is an act of trust. It doesn't just mean I went to bed at night, I laid down, and I got up. That's like us. I laid down, I got up, oh, thank God, you sustained me. No, no, no. You're on the run. People are seeking your life. They want your blood. Sleeping, choosing a place to sleep, and the fact that you can sleep is a big deal. It's a big deal because when you sleep, you are totally and completely vulnerable. It's a huge act of trust. Think of it in that context. I lay down and slept. I have to trust. I got to sleep. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I didn't wake up dead. That's what he said. I didn't wake up dead. Because when I was asleep, that's when I could have got got at that point. This is bad. David's on the run. And this is how he feels as he's on the run. So, again, sleeping in wartime is a big deal. It's an act of trust. And he says, I will not, in verse 6, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me round about. I'm surrounded. You go to sleep in an unsecure environment. That's what people get the drop on you. And you wake up surrounded. We got you surrounded. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who've set themselves against me round about. I remember um, in 2003... I think being, you know, being in Iraq, and I remember, you know, sleeping in tents and all that stuff. <laughs> and I remember they said, okay, this is where we're going to bed down. I said, okay, that's fine and all that, but what do you mean, like, going to bed down? I can't, like, how do I know who's watching? Like, what do, what do you mean we're just going to bed down? And uh, they had the, 
the, in the northern Iraq, they had the Peshmerga. It was these kind of allies, you know. And they said, don't worry, like the Peshmerga guys are up there on the hill, you know, in a tent, and they're, you know, they're looking out. So it's a couple of, you know, guys on the hill with an AK-47 in a tent drinking tea, you know, all night, you know, watching. That's what they were doing. So in a sense, I could lay down and sleep and sort of kind of rest with one eye open, um, but I knew that someone else is watching. So even if something happens, I will know, will be alerted. So sleeping is a, a really big deal in this environment. So David is, is putting his trust in God. First, there was the lament, right? First, there's the problem stated. This is what's going on. This, this, is, this is what is happening. Then he moves from that to th- this is the reality of what's happening, but this is the reality with you. This is the reality, is that I can trust you. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Please turn to Psalm uh, 91. We'll look at verses 14 through 16. Psalm 91, 14 through 16. Yeah, just let him read it. He's got a better voice than me. (laughs) And so God says it this way in these verses. He says, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. That's close relationship. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With, long, with a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. And so again, we're being told to trust who God is, trust in his character, trust in his will. The other song we sang this morning, it says, Our king delights to show compassion to the weak. Our king delights to show compassion to the weak. He stated his problem. He placed his trust in God that God would help him. And in verses 7 and 8, he makes his petition. Let's look there. Verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Arise, O Lord. Save me, oh my God. Arise, this phrase, arise, that's a typical term that is sung at the beginning of a military exploit or a battle. Arise, arise, arise. Because sometimes we forget that God fights against the flesh and blood enemies of his people. We see that all through scripture. We don't fight necessarily against flesh and blood, but God does. He fights against the flesh and blood enemies of his people. And so we see this a lot in the Psalms. This is what we call uh, retributive justice, you know, retribution. It's retributive justice. You know, God, the wicked have done this. Lord, please avenge me, avenge us, help us, save us from these people. Everyone read, uh, you know, the Exodus, right? They said, God, please save us, save us, save us. And God says, okay, I drown an army. I'll destroy an entire army. So God can fight against the flesh and blood enemies of our people. So a lot of theologians are divided over whether or not it's appropriate to pray what we call imprecatory psalms or these kind of you know, psalms when it says, you know, split their head open and you know, make their children homeless. You know, you see in those psalms where they do that. So theologians are kind of split over, well, do we pray that or not? Do we not pray that? Well, he wasn't split. Let's just say David was not split. 
psalmist was not split. But the point is for us, the point is for us that we have to always leave room in our hearts and ask that God would answer our prayers by redeeming our enemies, by redeeming our enemies. We have to leave room for that and pray that. I never pray, you know, Lord, crush them or whatever. You know, I don't do that. You know, when I drive past a Planned Parenthood or something, I go, burn it down. I don't care. Just end it. Whatever, like whatever. You know, if there's people you want to save out of there, you know, save them out of there, but just drown it in the ocean, you know, drown it in the sea, you know, that kind of thing. But never necessarily wishing for, you know, the ill of a specific person. You understand what I mean? So we want to always uh, ask, you know, God in our hearts that he may redeem our enemies. We pray for our enemies. And the next verse, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. And so this is meant to negate the taunts in verse 2. So if you look at 2 and 8 next to each other, verse 2, you see the lament. And then in verse 8, you see the praise. Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance, no salvation for him in God, taunting. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Do you see the contrast? So it's come full circle. It came full circle. And so what we're seeing in Psalm 3 is someone who cries out to God. And they're expressing very deep trust and very deep faith in him in the midst of distress and trouble. And so the scriptures here, we see they take us from problem to the placement of trust all the way to the point of petition, you know, to where we make a request. He said, here's the problem, and then the placement of trust, he's saying, but I know what you're like. Yes, here's the problem, but I know what you're like. I know how you are. And then petition, here's what I believe, because your petitions are really based on what we believe. You know, when we, when we actually say things and we take the time to say, Lord, you know, I am asking you for this. I am asking for your help. Now, one thing that I think would really help us is we do understand that God's will is sovereign, right? Prayer is not teaching God how to be a better God. You know, God do this, like bless grandma, bless grandpa. And he's going, okay, okay, y'all take care of that. It's not like that. We know that God answers prayer according to his will. And if we, we talked last time about when you read scripture, when you read it, it's interesting because the way scripture speaks, it implies that we know his will. It kind of says, you pray according to my will, right? You can look it up yourself. There's plenty of verses about God's will, and it says that you know. It says, this is the will of God in Christ, things like that. So it sort of speaks to us in the sense of going, you know what God's will is. You already know that. So when we pray, a lot of times we may be suffering or you know, going through a difficult experience, or there's just something that we're, you know, we're kind of really asking God for in the long term. You know, like here, you might say, you know, Lord, bring us a pastor, uh, Lord, help us to really make a difference here in Leavenworth. You know, help us to spread the gospel in this community. We have lots of people coming through. You know, they travel. They see, you know, help us to be a beacon of light. You know, things like that. Because you have a tremendous opportunity here in Leavenworth. It's huge. It's really, really huge. And I am grateful that, that, that we are here. Um, and so when we pray, what you want to do is always remember, be mindful of God's glory. That's how you sort of know. I, I kind of think of it as that's like a litmus test. So, so for example, it's one thing to say, you know, Lord, bring us a pastor. That's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But if, you, but if, if the ground of your prayer, the ultimate sort of deeper meaning and reason behind your prayer is, is to bring glory to God, you pray, God, please bring us a pastor so that we can make an impact, that we can make a difference, that the people can be shepherded, we can be trained well, we can do outreach, we can be here as a light and a beacon for the people of Leavenworth and the people who, who pass through here so that we can bring glory to your name. You see what I mean? Don't stop short and just, well, Lord, no, please do this, please do that. When it's tied to his glory, when it's tied to his honor, that's what scripture means when it says, when you ask anything according to my will, I will do it. That's a guarantee. Because we know, all, you can look all through the scripture, God's aim and glory is the glorification of himself and his redemptive plan. So God, you have a redemptive plan that's been going on since, Genesis, you know, since before the foundation of the world, when the lamb was slain, you have this redemptive plan. We are part of that plan. We are here, we're willing to serve you. Help us to manifest your glory and when all your prayers are tied to that, then all of a sudden it becomes very clear, you know, what to pray, how to pray, what to pray for. And you can have tremendous confidence and faith that God is going to answer those prayers. He will answer those prayers. Show us how we can glorify you here. Show us what we need to do to glorify you here. Bring us the right pastor for that reason. So the, the gentleman who's coming in, I'm certain, you know, he's the right guy. That's the guy that God has brought. So, you know, bring him in, but for this purpose, not just so we can have a pastor, but so we can glorify you. Help us to bless him, sanctify him and his family. Help him to bless us, sanctify us, so that we can glorify you. So if you want to see this uh, paradigm in kind of New Testament terms, you know, more direct terms, uh, turn over to uh, Philippians 4 and look at verse 6, please. Philippians 4, 6. So remember, in Psalm 3, we saw... You know, this, this challenge, this difficulty, the problem was stated. We read a few verses where we see the psalmist give an example of what it's like to put your trust in God. And then we saw him make a petition, or we could say a supplication, you know, a request to ask for something. And so in Philippians 4, verse 6, I mean, at, look at this same pattern in what we just saw. It says here, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the exact same paradigm you just saw, but in sort of a condensed version in New Testament form. It's the same thing. So there is a, um, an analogy that I like to use on occasion. It, it it goes something like this. Uh, for example, we are here in Leavenworth, and there's smoke here because of the fires. And so we wake up, and we step out and, and go outside, and we go, oh, it's smoky. But you have to remember, if you've ever flown in an airplane, you fly, and you'll, you'll often hear a pilot say, uh, it's a little bumpy, and they'll say, they'll use the term, we're, gonna go, we're trying to get above the weather. You've heard that. And so no matter what the weather is, they'll fly up to a certain altitude, and you go, man, like everything is below me. It's clear as a bell. I mean, it's absolutely clear as a bell. Blue sky as far as you could see. And then below you, there's this thick 
you know, layer of weather or clouds. So it's the same with us. You know, so there's smoke here. That's the reality. I mean, it's true. There's smoke here. It's a reality. And so remember, we're praying from like within the smoke. You know, we're praying from here. You know, God, it's smoky. It's this, it's that. But when you pray, the idea is that remember, there's, the reality is also what that person sees in that plane. So they're looking down going, that's, to you, that's massive. From a satellite, that's a little, it's a tiny little thing of smoke. So to us, it's huge. And so when we pray, you want to be mindful of that reality. That the smoke is here. I see it. I mean, it's a reality. It's here. It's as far as I can see that way. It's as far as I can see that way. It's going to take forever to clear, you know, that kind of thing. But simultaneously, it is also a reality that it is crystal clear as a bell. It's crystal clear as a bell at a certain point. And so, in effect, that's what David is doing here. That's what Philippians is telling us. Don't be burdened. Don't be anxious. Just be mindful that this is true. This is the reality that we see. This is what we're experiencing. This is what's going on. These are what our needs are. But that's not the only reality. So when you see, so what faith is, when we pray in faith and we turn to God, what we're saying is that we recognize there's another reality. It's not just, you know, pie in the sky, abstract, you know, whatever. It's really understanding, you know, there's another reality. Because a lot of these psalms are written when stuff is still happening. It's not that it's over and he's writing from, yeah, I remember that was when that happened back then. He's writing from right smack in the middle of this mess, but still saying, you are my salvation. You are going to do this. You will save me from my enemies. So he's praying, understanding there is a point at which everything is clear as a bell. This is merely a temporary state. This is a temporary thing that's going on right now. And so living life with God means living with the awareness that, that our afflictions, like the weather, are temporary and that they're light. Always remember what it is like, reality. Remember what it is like above the clouds. Don't get caught up just in the present weather conditions. Keep your eyes on the instruments. Uh, uh, people that fly airplanes... You often wonder, it's pitch black, you're over the Atlantic Ocean. How does this person possibly know where they're going? It's because they're not flying with their eyeballs. They're flying looking at instruments. They can't see anything. The instruments are telling them, you're at this altitude, you're heading 270 degrees this direction, you know, this is your pitch, this is your angle. They can't see that. It's pitch black. But they're merely looking at a set of instruments going, that's the reality, not that. This is really the reality. This can be deceptive. And if you know anything about aviation, it is absolutely true that tremendous aviation accidents have happened because pilots went, yeah, instruments, instruments, I'm looking. And they will fly smack into a mountain. It's happened. I mean, you can look it up. Scripture is the same way. You, you look from Scripture. What does Scripture say? Not what is this telling me? That's what David is doing here. Keep your eyes on the instruments. So take your burdens to God. Let's place our trust in him. Make your petitions centered on his glory and for his purposes. And remember that all of this, remember it happened in the backdrop of 2 Samuel. And one of the things that 2 Samuel teaches is that for all of David's greatness as a king, he he was a failure that he is not the king. That's why we call Christ the son of David. Christ is the king. 
So even though Samuel is there and we saw the, the great things, the covenant, the, the Ark of the Covenant and everything, it is still pointing out that the human king is not the answer. He's not the final say. It's, it wasn't David. Bless, you know, bless David. He's in Scripture for a reason. We can learn a lot from him. I don't mean that to show disrespect. But he was not the king. Our king came. So now we're on the other side of this. We have a better covenant. We have better promises. And we, we talked about prayer, you know, turning to God. David is praying to Yahweh, right? He's praying to God. We have an incarnate Savior. And Scripture says that the incarnate Savior, it says he is actively, like right now, he is actively ruling and interceding for us to the Father. So we're not even just praying alone. Then on top of that, the Scripture says you don't even know exactly kind of what or how to pray. So Scripture says then you have the Holy Spirit helping you to pray. So even when you pray, the Holy Spirit goes, this is what he's really trying to say. This is, she doesn't even really fully understand this. This is what she's trying to say. This is what he means. So we don't even have to be worried about the frailty of our words. You know, like I didn't say it exactly right. God knows your heart. He knows what you mean. So you have Christ. You know, when we sit down, we think of sitting as resting. It's resting. You know, so take a seat. You know, it's relaxing. The scripture says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. For a king, when you sit, that's work. It means I'm seated. I'm on the throne. So seated at the right hand of the Father doesn't mean chilling at the right hand of the Father. Seated means court is in session. I'm ruling. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for the saints. So even stuff that we don't think to pray for, that we don't pray for accurately, he is constantly still as our high priest praying and working on our behalf the best thing they had in the old testament were you know were the priests the imperfect human priests that's as close as they could get so we're on the other side of this we have a better covenant better promises we have the holy spirit within us we have the holy spirit who helps us to pray we have an incarnate savior who's interceding for us to the father for our good and for his glory So I want to leave you with the encouragement to take your burdens to God. Place your trust in him. Please, place your trust in him. If you don't know how to do that, talk to somebody. Because I know I'm supposed to play, I don't know what to do. What does that mean? I don't know how to do it. Talk to, do something. But I'm telling you, take your burdens to him. Don't carry them all on yourself. Put your trust in him. God delights in people who trust him and love him. And he will use you in your situation for his glory. And then make your petition to him. Because we have a living hope. It's a living hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. I ask that everyone that would hear this um, would, would take it to heart. And understand the degree to which you've condescended to us to make a way for us that you've provided a way of salvation, that you offer an endless supply of hope that will never be put to shame when we put our trust in you and that we have to always keep our eyes on what scripture is telling us and not necessarily what our circumstances are, but to view those circumstances in light of what scripture says and realize that we will never be put to shame. We will never turn to you in vain when we put our trust in you and make our petitions in faith 
for your glory. And I ask that you would help us all with that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.